You know, I just, I, I, it, it's, it's always good for Carolee and uh, me to come home to Desert Springs Presbyterian Church. This is home. <laughs> uh, thanks for having us. Uh, I appreciate Steve and the elders uh, occasion, occasionally inviting me to come and preach here. It's a great blessing to us. So if you have your Bibles, if you would turn in, uh, turn in them to our text for today, it's Mark chapter 4, verses, what, 35 through 41. Uh, <clears throat> it's a familiar text. This is God's inerrant, infallible, and I think specific word to us this Lord's Day, 5 July 2020. So let's pay close heed to it. So this is Mark 4, 35 through 41. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. There was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. And he said to one another, and said to one another, Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. Please pray with me. Father, this is your word. You caused it to be written. Every word of it is your word. Every jot, every tittle. We thank you for this this beautiful story of Christ calming the storm, a true story, telling us that There is indeed a theology of Christians in suffering and trials, a theology which needs to be remembered, and I think particularly at this difficult moment in our lives. So, Father, give us wisdom and discernment this morning to learn and apply this important lesson to our faith, and I ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. I'm sure since you hang on every word I say that you remember that I preached on this same text back in 2015. Uh, I don't know, maybe not. Uh, Well, in any event, it seems appropriate to revisit it in light of our our present circumstances with with COVID-19, lockdowns, masks, no masks, social distancing, which many of you know kills me because I like hugs. Uh, All the other things that are going on, racial tensions, protests in our cities, some peaceful, some not so peaceful, events swirling around us that are literally tearing at the very fabric of our personal lives, our country, our culture. Dear ones, we live in such a time a time when the fragile form of this world is being felt, when its seemingly solid foundations are literally shaking, when the whole world seems to be in a free fall. 
And you say, or at least I say, Jesus, this isn't what you're supposed to do. This isn't the way things are supposed to be. Jesus, don't you care? How do you want me to react to all this that's swirling around us? You find yourself in a storm. You know, all of us here today, we're in one right now. You know, these past couple of months, I don't know, they've been so strange, so bizarre, so abnormal, so disruptive, so chaotic. You know, very little about it makes any sense. And if you believe the experts, it's not over. Or as Winston Churchill once said in a different context, it may be the end of the beginning, but it's not the beginning of the end. We're not sure where the end is. And I think the question confronting Christians, no doubt many here or watching this morning, is do we have a rock under our feet? Do we have a rock that cannot be shaken, that cannot be shaken ever? You know, it's a good question, isn't it? Do we have a rock under our feet? Well, I have some good news for you. This text from Mark speaks directly to that question. You see, that's what this story of Christ stilling the storm's all about. It's about life's trials and how Christians should deal with them. So look there at the text that I just read. I want to make a few general comments about it. You know, each of the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, includes this account, this account of Jesus stilling the storm. It's an important miracle, not least because it brings to our minds the power of God displayed over nature in some of the great miracles of the Old Testament. For example, God parting the waters of the Red Sea. So here, Mark gives another demonstration of the identity of Jesus with Yahweh of the Old Testament. Basically, it demonstrates that Jesus is God. It demonstrates that he can control the weather. He can control nature. Now, it's so interesting, I think. This account is so vivid with many eyewitness details. And I think we know eyewitness details adds to the credibility of any text. I think it's good to remember, I'm sure you you know, that that Mark and the Apostle Peter were deeply involved in the writing of this gospel. You know, what happened was around A.D. 65, Mark basically followed Peter around with a notebook, writing down what Peter, Peter saw and heard. And Peter was an eyewitness of most of the Lord's earlier ministry. Look at verse 36. We note this curious little detail. They took Jesus along just as he was. I think that apparently means that Jesus was taken directly from the boat from which he had been teaching the crowds along the lake shore without returning him to shore. It's a small detail, something an eyewitness would remember, but no one else would, would think to add it. Peter saw this. He told Mark. Mark wrote it down. A similar detail, it's not picked up in the account, 
is that there were other boats with them as they began the crossing of the lake. And I, I think we're left to wonder what happened to the other boats in the storm. But Mark says absolutely nothing about them. It's another little eyewitness detail. Then there's this, I think, very strange, this strange little detail in verse 38, that Jesus was asleep in the back of the boat on a cushion. That's an eyewitness detail. Now, I mention all this because, you know, these sorts of details, they don't advance the plot here. They don't develop any of the characters. They're basically irrelevant. They're unnecessary to the flow of the story. And you see, that's what gives this story the marks of something that actually happened. And it's being reported by someone who was actually there. In other words, we can know that this story, which is all about the power of Jesus, really happened. The true story. Peter was actually there. He told Mark, who wrote it down. You know, I've been on the Sea of Galilee. And, uh, you know, in, uh, in calm weather, a journey across it, depending on where you're going on the far shore, takes normally about, I don't know, an hour or two. But this lake is notorious for sudden and severe storms. If you've been there... You know that the surface of the Sea of Galilee, it's about 700 feet below sea level. And on several sides, it's bordered by steep hills, and it includes the famous Golan Heights. And what happens, I, I don't really understand this, but the interchange between cooler air from the heights and the warmer air coming up from the surface of the lake create conditions in which winds sweep down the ravines and they whip up these unusually large waves for a lake that size. It says in verse 38 that Jesus is fast asleep, even in the uproar of this storm. I think that's a testimony that he's no doubt exhausted from his ministry. And here's another interesting little fact. The fact that the disciples who make their living on the waters of this lake were so afraid, I think that indicates the severity of the storm. It was a big one. It was the perfect storm. You know, the desperate and, we might think, disrespectful rebuke of Jesus by the disciples in verse 38 I think it's almost certainly a verbatim recollection of what they said. This is the way people speak when they're terrified. The word rebuke in verse 39 is interesting. It's the same word used earlier by Mark when the Lord rebuked the evil spirits in people. Chapter 1, verse 25. So interesting. The Lord speaks to the lake as if it were an unruly heckler. You know, a good paraphrase of what he said is, be quiet. Maybe a better one might be, shut up. And what do you know? The wind and the sea instantly obey. So whether evil spirits or the forces of nature, they're all subject to the Lord's command. Look at verse 41. 
The presence of the supernatural here terrifies the disciples even more than the storm had. Now, even the prospect of their own death in the storm was not as discomforting to them as the presence of God. And so as the text ends, I think we're left with the question, in the midst of this storm, will these men put their faith, put their trust in Jesus? How should they respond to this serious trial, this storm that they're experiencing? Well, let's get into the boat with Jesus and these disciples and see what we can learn here. This story, this historical narrative, I think it is in the first place, it's a revelation of Jesus himself. A demonstration of his divine authority. A demonstration of his power over the forces of nature. It certainly is that, and that's important. But this story is much, much more than that. I think it is entirely proper to treat this passage as a lesson for us regarding the trials of our lives, the sorrows, the, the fears, the confusions which we have to endure in this world. In verse 40, Jesus asked his disciples immediately after calming the lake, have you still no faith? So you see, Jesus is interested here in this passage, not only in the facts about himself, but the implication of those facts for his disciples, for us. You see, the Lord turns this miracle into an important lesson about my faith and about your faith in trials, in tribulation, in frustration, in fear, in the storms of life. This is a lesson about our faith in a pandemic. What's our faith going to look like when things suddenly go south? We find ourselves in a situation like these disciples find themselves in. How are we going to react? You know, if there is a single lesson to be learned from this narrative, I think of the stilling of the storm, I think it's best captured by an old Anglican bishop, J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle put it this way. This is so good. He says, sight, sense, and feeling make even believers very poor theologians. Sight, sense, and feeling make even believers very poor theologians. And he goes on and he says, the size of the waves, the fury of the wind, the sight of the water accumulating in the bottom of the boat, and of the boat sinking deeper into the waters of the lake, made the disciples forget almost everything that they had already learned about Jesus. Not everything, for they at least knew enough to wake up the Lord and cry out to him. But Rao says they did so after the manner of a desperate appeal to their last resort and in a spirit of despairing fear. Master, master, we're going to drown. Now, I, I don't know about you, my first impulse is to think poorly of the disciples in this situation. I don't know, maybe it's yours too. But we shouldn't think poorly of them because this is us. 
You know, far too often we're just like the disciples, just as forgetful, just as mesmerized by the waves when our trials come. You know, we see the waves, we hear the wind, we sense the danger and our trouble consumes us in the same way. And though we're Christians, we appeal to the Lord sometimes only as a kind of desperate afterthought. Why aren't you doing something, Lord? Can't you see I'm drowning here? How long is this lockdown going to last? I'm so tired of all this, Lord. You know, I think what I'm saying here is we cannot hear our biblical doctrine. We forget our theology. We forget our Christology, what we know to be true about Christ. That can't be heard in our souls over the moaning of the wind over the crashing of the waves. Now, isn't that what so often happens in times of disaster, whether it's a sick child, you know, an abnormal medical result, collapsing markets, or the looming shadow of COVID-19 or anarchy in the streets? Dear ones, there is a theology for Christians in suffering to be remembered, not forgotten. And that theology is clearly depicted here in this account of Christ stilling the storm. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Let's look at that for a second. You know, I think one of the best definitions of personal faith that I've run into lately is this, and it's basically the theme of my sermon. Faith is confidence in Christ as able to act suitably to the occasion. Faith is confidence in Christ as able to act suitably to the occasion. Write that down. And that's true, I think, in a number, three particular respects, all of which are highlighted, uh, highlighted in this short account of Christ calming the storm. Let me just quickly go through them. And I think they're in your handout, too. First, the troubles which so much disturbed and distressed these disciples, those troubles were the Lord's doing. You notice, did you pick that up from the, from the text? Those troubles which disturbed the, the disciples were the Lord's doing. Look at verse 35 again. It was the Lord's idea to take a boat across the lake. It's his idea. It wasn't Peter's idea. It wasn't John's idea. It was the Lord's idea. He was the one who said, let us go across to the other side. They would never have been in this pickle, in this fix. They would never have been on that lake that night before the Lord's decision. That was the Lord's decision. That was the Lord's doing. He was tired. He was exhausted. He had to get away from the crowds. So it was the Lord's needs and the Lord's purposes that had put the disciples in this difficulty. So given that, what do you think should have been the response of the disciples? Well, it's very interesting. Had the disciples had the faith the size of a grain of mustard seed, which, which by the way, Jesus had just taught about that the very same day, 
That was in chapter 4, verse 30. He taught that. These disciples would have come to Jesus in the boat. And they would have said, not master, master, we're going to drown. But I think they would have said, Lord, we're just going to sit back and see how you're going to deal with this rather interesting situation. Knowing that these troubles had been ordered for them by the Lord. You know, think about that. If the Lord could calm a storm by merely rebuking the wind and the waves, is it not obvious that he could have prevented the storm from rising in the first place? Now, he could have, if he wanted to, he could have ordered up a glassy, glassy smooth waters. He could have even given the boats a bit of a tailwind. If you find yourself in a storm, your merciful Savior has had a hand in that. Faith knows that. Sight and sense and feeling often forget that. Faith knows that. Sight and sense and feeling often forget it. And I think knowing that is a very large part of the hope and the peace and the strength that we need in the storms of life, even those we're experiencing right now. He who loves us with an everlasting love could have kept us from every one of our trials, heartbreaks, and dangers. And that he has not, I think, is the clearest indication that he intends for us to face this trouble or that trouble. Dear ones, nature is powerful. COVID-19 is powerful, but a storm and a virus don't love you. A storm is indifferent to you. A virus is indifferent to you. But God is all-powerful over storms, evil spirits, viruses, sin. And he is filled with an untamable love for you and me. So I think that's one important thing. The troubles which so much disturb us are the Lord's doing. And that's a valuable lesson for us to learn, to remember, to put into practice. Second, on your handout there, the troubles which so frighten the disciples pose no real danger to them at all with Christ present with them as he was. You know, I think in the aftermath of this storm, it's clear what a blunder the disciples made and why they had nothing to say when the Lord effectively rebuked them for their lack of faith. They had been terrified for their lives while the maker of heaven and earth lay a few feet away, sleeping peacefully on a cushion. You know, I'm speculating here, but they didn't know everything about Jesus of Nazareth. But they knew enough by now that he was the Messiah. They had considered it the most sensible thing to leave their livelihoods to serve him. They witnessed all his miracles, his healings, casting out of demons. Did they really think that God's plan for the world would come to an end because of some unforeseen accident? Jesus drowning while crossing the Sea of Galilee? Couldn't they, couldn't they see that there was no safer spot in all the universe than in that boat on that lake 
on that night. No, they couldn't see any of that. Because while the eyes of their bodies were wide open, terror struck by the sight of the waves, the eyes of their souls, their faith, were slammed shut. And we can far too often, I think, be just like the disciples on the lake that night. You know, what we can see with our eyes and hear with our ears, it sort of it mesmerizes us. We forget that our Savior promised that he would never leave us or forsake us, that he will be with us to the end of the world, that he will always provide a way of escape from our tests and trials, and that he knows how to deliver the godly from their troubles. God forgive us. We can sometimes think and behave as if the Lord Christ, our master and commander, were on the far side of the world totally unaware of our circumstances, instead of in the stern of the very boat in which we're rowing through the storm. Dear ones, we're rowing through a storm right now. We all are. Sometimes it's confusing. But I do know that whatever your troubles and sorrows and dangers may be, if you see the Lord at your side, if you see heaven before your face, if you see the angels camped around you, if you see Jesus in the boat with you, if you see that, then suddenly instead of fear and creeping despair, I think you'll discover that there's a certain exhilaration in experiencing the trials in this life and seeing how God's going to deal with them. So there's more to be said here, but that's essentially the second thing. The troubles which so frighten us really pose no real danger to us with Christ present with us as he is. I think the text clearly says that. And then finally, the troubles and dangers which so disturbed and distressed these disciples were in fact opportunities for Christ to manifest himself and to reveal his glory among his people. Now you can't tell me that when all this was over, with the lake calm and the, you know, the wind just sort of a gentle zephyr, with the adrenaline still pumping through their veins from what they had just gone through, you can't tell me that even one of these disciples would rather have stayed behind and missed out on all this action. Not on your life. What they had seen, this, what they had seen would stay with them, vivid in their memories, would strengthen them. Encourage them. You see, they would take this experience with them to their graves. They would tell their grandkids about it. They would tell their great-grandkids about it. You know, no great demonstration of divine power calming a storm can be given without a storm to calm, without a coronavirus to cure. These disciples would never have seen what they saw had they not been seen the waves and the wind that the Savior rebuked. You know, I love the Puritans. Samuel Rutherford, a Puritan, once wrote this about the Lord. I think it applies right here. He says, The Lord ties terrible knots just to have the pleasure of loosening them off from those he loves. 
He lays nets and sets traps only that he may get a chance of healing broken bones and setting the terrified free. I think it's marvelous. That's exhilarating when that happens in our lives. Dear ones, what a, what a completely different, wonderfully different way to look at the troubles we face. To see them as opportunities for the Lord to show himself to us as our deliverer and savior and friend and our all-powerful protector. Maybe, maybe you've heard of the Scottish theologian Thomas Boston. This guy was a theological giant. Jonathan Edwards said that Boston's work on the covenants distinguished him as a truly great divine. He wrote 12 thick volumes on almost every doctrine you can think of on the Christian life. He taught from every book of the Bible. Boston served faithfully as a pastor for over 25 years in the same rural parish. He, uh, he, was, uh, he served faithfully. But I think he's to be admired most for his perseverance through suffering. Thomas Boston was a melancholy man. He was prone to seasons of discouragement in the Christian life. He was often in poor health, although he never missed his turn in the pulpit. His wife suffered from chronic illness of the body, maybe also of the mind. But perhaps the greatest couple's greatest trial was the death of their children. They lost six out of their ten babies. And so, you know, you think about that. After suffering uh, such a heavy loss, many people would be tempted to drop out of the ministry, to argue with God, why? Or even to abandon their faith. Boston did none of these. He continued believing in the goodness and the sovereignty of God. Now, rather than turning away from the Lord in times of trial, he turned towards the Lord for help and for comfort. You know, one of Boston's last sermons before he died was on the sovereignty of God, and I think I put this in your outline. He titled it, The Crook in the Lot. And it was based on the command and the question that we read in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 13. I think I put this in there. Consider the work of God. That's the command. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Now, the command in this verse is a call. It's a call to a careful observation of the way that God works. Consider the work of God. You know, the man who wrote Ecclesiastes, the preacher, it was probably King Solomon himself. This man, he took careful notice of the world around him. He studied the seasons of life, learning what it was, uh, when it was time for this and time for that. He watched the way people worked. He watched the way people played. He saw how they lived. He saw how they died. And then in chapter 7 of, of Ecclesiastes, he invited readers to consider God's work in the world. And then he asked this rhetorical question. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? So how shall we answer Boston? Who does have the power to straighten out what God has made crooked? 
Well, the answer, of course, is no one. Things are the way that God wants them to be. We don't have the ability to overrule the Almighty. Let me just say, when the preacher talks about something crooked, he's not referring to something that is sort of morally out of line, as if God, you know, could be the author of either. He's not, that's, that's not what he's talking about. Instead, he's talking about some trouble or some difficulty in life we wish that we could change but cannot. Happens to all of us. It's happening now. Who doesn't want God to have mercy, get rid of this deadly virus, get rid of violence? You know, we have all things in our lot. We, We all have things in our lots which we wish we could change. This is interesting. Listen to how Boston explains that. He says, In that train of or courses of events, some fall out cross to us and against the grain, and these make the crook in our lot. While we are here, there will be cross events as well as agreeable ones in our lot and condition. Sometimes things are softly and agreeably gliding on. But by and by, there is some incident which alters that course, grates us, and pains us. Everybody's lot in this world has some crook in it. There is no perfection here. No lot out of heaven without a crook. But here's the thing. Neither the preacher in Ecclesiastes or Thomas Boston were fatalists. Instead, they took a look and they framed their situations in terms of the sovereignty of God. According to Boston, this view of God's sovereignty, he said, is a proper means at once to silence and satisfy men, and so to bring them unto a dutiful submission to their maker and governor under the crook in their lot. In other words... We're under the power of the sovereign and omnipotent ruler of the universe. We don't have the power to edit his plan for our lives. Now, we do suffer the frustration of life in a fallen world, but the Bible says that we suffer these things by the will of a God who is planning to set us free from all this futility and who is working all things together for our good, Romans 8, 20 and 28. That's what Boston is saying. Trust God in this crooked circumstance. He is hard at work to accomplish your, your, your real spiritual good, not just in one way, but in many ways. You know, and I thought about it. And whenever, whenever we're having trouble doing that, trusting God, you know, I think the first thing we should do, you know, as the preacher says is to consider the work of our Savior. Remember that our good shepherd once had a crook in his lot, a serious crook. Christ's crook came in the shape of a cross. In his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, Jesus asked his Father if there was another way, any other way to make Calvary straight instead of crooked. You know what the Father said? No way. Sorry. There's no other way. It has to be the way of the cross. And Jesus considered the work of God. And he he could see that. 
He could see that the only way to make atonement for his people's sin was to die in their place. So what happened? You know what happened. He bit the bullet. He saw it through. He obeyed his father and suffered the crooked cross that it was his God-given lot to bear. And he trusted his father, waiting for him to straighten things out when the time was right by raising him up on the third day. Well, what are we to think of all this as we hunker down in the face of this, whatever you want, pandemic? Well, I'm, I think, first of all, that if God could straighten out something as crooked as the cross, then surely he can be trusted to do something with the crook in your lot, in my lot. You know, that, that was the testimony of James Montgomery Boyce. The testimony that he gave the last time he spoke to his congregation in Philadelphia's 10th Presbyterian Church. You know the story, I'm sure. If you don't, Dr. Boyce had been diagnosed with a fatal and very aggressive cancer. He only had weeks to live and he knew it. This was the crook in his lot. So Dr. Boyce raised a question. It was based on the sovereignty and the goodness of God. And he told the congregation, if God does something in your life, would you change it? If God does something in your life, he asked, would you change it? To say this the way the preacher in Ecclesiastes would have said it, if God gave you something crooked, would you make it straight? Well, would you? Would you change your disability or disease or COVID-19? Would you change your job or your finances? Would you change your appearance or, or your abilities or your situation in life? Or would you trust God for all the crooked things in life and wait for him to make them straight? Jesus did that when he died for you on the cross. Well, Dr. Boyce answered his own rhetorical question by testifying to the goodness of God's sovereign will. He said that if we tried to change what God has done, then it wouldn't be as good. We would only make it worse. You know, the preacher who wrote Ecclesiastes said something similar. Consider the work of God, he said. Don't try to straighten out what God has made crooked. Our Savior said basically the same thing. Luke records it. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You know, there's one final thought here as we conclude uh, that I want you to note. Take a look at verse 40 for just a second. Jesus actually rebukes his disciples for their lack of faith. Why are you so afraid, he says? Have you still no faith? You know, or maybe to put it in the language of today, after all you've seen me do and heard me say, do you still understand nothing at all? Are you still that dense? 
Now, here's the thing. I think we, we all need encouragements in many ways. The Lord gives us that uh, in abundance. But from time to time, you and I need to be rebuked. We need to hear that our faithless ways, especially in the light of the Lord's many demonstrations of his faithfulness to us over the years of our lives, it, it's inexcusable. We need to hear that there is sin we must repent of, put to death, if we have any, any spark of honor in our heart. You know, I, there's no excuse for us not to understand that our troubles are no accident, but have been brought to us by the Lord himself, that he is with us in and through them, and that we cannot sink so long as he is there to save us that our trials are his opportunities to thrill us as he thrilled the disciples that long ago night. I, I believe that sometimes we need rebuke. And that rebuke can itself be a powerful encouragement. Perhaps this is such a time for us to be rebuked for our lack of faith. Well, let me, I've, let me close with this. The Lord's in the boat with us. He's with you in this pandemic. He's with you in whatever. Your loneliness, your worry. Yes, your worry about the future, your job. He's with you in the troubles you have with your kids, with your husband, with your wife, with your boss. He's with you in your sickness and those of your loved ones. And yes, he's going to be with you still on your deathbed. You know, I'm reminded here of the Apostle Paul speaking to the Christians in Corinth, referring to these storms of life. Remember what he called them? He called them slight momentary afflictions. This from a man who suffered much in this world. He was shipwrecked. He went to prison. He was beat, beaten. He was persecuted. Slight momentary afflictions? Really? Yes. You know, that's what Paul calls his storms of life. Slight momentary afflictions. You see, here's the, here's the thing. He who simply spoke and calmed a great storm is fully able to hold us up and deliver us when his waves and breakers sweep over us. Slight momentary afflictions compared to the weight of glory which are going to be ours in heaven in the not-too-distant future. Dearly beloved, if you call all this to mind, if you keep it in mind, you know, it, it is, after all, a frequently taught lesson in Scripture. I promise you in the Lord's name, you will far more often than is now the case have occasion to say, not with fear, but with wonder and amazement and exhilaration, who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? It's nothing more than exercising faith, having a confidence in Christ that he is able and will act in suitable way in every situation in your life, including the one you're in now. Let me pray, pray with me. Our God and Father, we thank you for this wonderful, this exhilarating story of our Lord calming the storm. When those times in our lives come around, as they surely will, as they have, when we are about to be bowled over by our troubles, when we might be brought to complain, 
when we would be prone to despair so easily as if the Lord is not there and we are alone. Father, in those circumstances, will you rebuke us? Lord, take us back to this passage. Cause us to rehearse in our life, in our minds and hearts, the lessons taught here. May we see afresh that you are with us in the boat, that your detour, whatever form it takes, is actually the road, and that you are completely capable of delivering us as you have proved yourself capable of delivering us so many times. Lord, make it so in every heart this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.